The Ready, Set, Grow podcast is sponsored by Ag Expert, software designed for Canadian agriculture. Visit them today at agexpert.ca. Welcome to the Ready, Set, Grow podcast, where we like to showcase startup and early stage companies, as well as visit with innovators in the agriculture and food industry. Today, we're here with Joe Dales, co-founder at RH Accelerator, and special guest Randall Schwartz and Truber, co-founder and CEO at Bin Century. Randall, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, as uh, you mentioned, I am uh, Randall, co-founder and CEO of Bin Century. Um, I have been running this company now and founded it about three and a half years ago, uh, right here in southwestern Ontario. Uh, grew up in New Hamburg, um, spent a lot of time on my grandfather's farm growing up, which is kind of where I first got introduced to agriculture, uh, but ended up taking a pretty different path in life in terms of uh, career. Um, ultimately sort of found myself in the role of uh, automation programmer slash engineer slash sort of system design stuff. Um, and that is, in fact, where I first heard about the opportunity to found Bin Century. So I come from an interesting career with a little bit of uh, agricultural sprinkling on top of that. But I would say at heart, I'm probably still a nerd in spite of the fact that I found myself here today. Well, that's terrific. So um, I just want to dive a little deeper uh what what specifically did you take in university and and you know what kind of background set you sent you up to yeah. do an ag tech company yeah so coincidentally in university i took something very different to what i am ultimately doing today um i actually took theology so i was doing some youth ministry at one point uh in my past really enjoyed it um still today love investing in the lives of you know young people um and, and now obviously it looks a little bit different i get to invest in the lives of people in our uh, in our business and in our community. Um, but I was doing that for a good period of time. Um, always have sort of had a very diverse set of interests and passions. Technology has always been one of them. So in any career that I've ever always done or ever done, um, I've looked for sort of opportunities to optimize and, and introduce efficiencies. Um, and so uh, even while doing sort of youth ministry, it was always like trying to figure out how I could optimize things and use technology to kind of make workflows smoother. Um, ultimately, um, I ended up sort of stepping away from that and more towards a technology focused career, which was the automation thing. Um, did some some schooling to get certified for that and then moved into that uh, line of work. Um, but it's been sort of an interesting path. But ultimately today, uh, as I play the role of CEO in a company, it's it's sort of cool to see how looking back all of those diverse experiences and, and you know, jobs that I've done in my past have kind of uniquely qualified me or positioned me to be able to navigate what is uh, an ever changing sort of career. Um, Joe, you would know, having been a CEO in the past, there's like a new challenge, a new fire to deal with every single day. And you've got to have emotional IQ to know how to deal with the personal challenges. And you've got to have, you know, a technical IQ to know how to deal with the tech side of things. Uh, and so looking back, it's kind of been an interesting mishmash of, of experiences that have ultimately led me to where I am today. But again, going to school, that, that certainly was not the thing that I thought I was going to end up doing is running a tech company as a CEO someday down the road. But I got to say, I love it. I love where I am today. And I, I love how all of those experiences now, um, you know, are, are sort of drawn upon um, to kind of look forward and, and figure out how to do this thing. Obviously, being a CEO, there's not many ways that you can learn that unless you're talking to lots of other CEOs or just kind of forging a path on your own. But um, yeah, it's definitely a, a unique set of experiences that have sort of brought me to where I am today. Oh, good. So <clears throat> tell us a little bit about the company, the products you're offering, yeah. the services you're offering. Um, if people haven't heard of it, uh, 
you know, just uh, give us the, give us the, the elevator pitch. Yeah. Well, I mean, when I was doing that automation career that I just spoke about a couple of minutes ago, uh, you know, not more than four and a half years ago, I was very happy to be honest. I, I thought I would probably never leave that career because it ended up being just such a strong fit. It was, it was amazing what I was doing on a daily basis until I heard uh, from a feed mill owner locally um, that he had this unique challenge uh, that he faced at his mill on essentially a daily basis and which he claimed was a universal problem. Um, naively at that point in time, I sort of assumed, you know, how many truly universal problems are there in the world that have yet to be solved? And so I was a bit of a skeptic when he told me that this is a problem that feed mills face on a daily basis. Uh, my response to him, I'll, I'll always remember this was, give me, you know, a couple hours on, on um, Google tonight and I will find the solution that you're looking for. Surely it's out there. It's probably just that you haven't looked hard enough. Uh, and so that night, literally went home, spent four hours on Google, um, searching for the solution that would um, solve his problem. Um, and the problem as he described it to me was basically a supply management problem. Um, feed mills on a daily basis produce, you know, huge amounts of, of feed, custom blends for each individual farm that they're servicing. They then take that feed that they manufacture, put it in the back of a delivery truck, in some cases, multiple deliveries. And then those trucks have to drive out to the farms and deposit all of that feed inside of the feed bins. Once the feed is inside of those feed bins, the feed mill now no longer has good visibility into how much product is remaining. So once it's in those bins, obviously livestock inside of those barns start consuming the feed and every farm consumes that feed at a different rate. So you can imagine if you're a feed mill who's tasked with the responsibility of servicing hundreds or thousands of feed bins uh, and, and producing custom blends of feed for every one of those farms, having good and accurate and timely information is of the utmost importance. And so this feed mill owner was sort of lamenting the fact that this is the challenge his mill faces on a daily basis. And the best source of information that he had available to them was literally a farmer equipped with a mallet pounding on the side of a feed bin on farm and listening for where it sounds hollow and where it sounds solid. Um, and of course, there's a Canadian flavor to this as well. Some farmers don't use the mallet. They literally use a hockey stick to whack on the side of the bins. Uh, and that, that's honestly where their, their information came from. So after a farmer pounded on the side of the bin, he would listen for how hollow it sounded. He would then have to get on the phone and call his mill up and let them know what his estimate was um, pertaining to how much product he thought was inside of the bin, which would then equip the mills to do the thing that they needed to do, schedule that particular product, produce it, get it on a truck and transport it efficiently. Um, so as this feed mill owner described it to me, there really was no good way of getting that information that didn't depend on a human. Hopefully, you know, being out at that bin at the time the mill needed them to be out there and capable of effectively estimating how much is inside of this giant opaque bin. It's literally like a scaled up version of the jelly bean game that you've probably all seen at a party, right? Like you're, you have to guess how many jelly beans are inside. Imagine that times 10,000 and trying to guess how much feed is inside of a bin. Difficult problem. Um, so that's, that's the problem he articulated to me. And I thought surely there's a solution to this particular problem. But when I looked on Google, you know, the only options that were out there were these sort of archaic, extremely expensive, um, extremely difficult to install solutions um, that no mill was ever going to be able to afford and deploy on mass. I mean, there's load cells, which you might be familiar with. You can jack up a bin and put scales underneath each leg. And that really was one of the, the best options. 
Um, being sort of a tech nerd, as I already said, um, I recognize that there was an opportunity here to be building um, a technology that falls into the category of IoT. Um, and that really is what sort of set us out on this journey is that conversation I had with that feed mill owner, um, going on Google and believing I would find something um, only to discover that really there, there was not a solution out there that adequately solved this problem. Um, and that's sort of where the genesis of bin century began. Uh, can you take us a little bit through the uh, just the technology that you're using? I'm kind of interested yeah, in it. For sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I always sort of joke um, and I, I'm stealing this quote a little bit from Thomas Edison, but I joke that the reason why we've been able to solve this problem where lots of other companies have not is that we know all 250 ways to fail. Um, and that is truly the process that we went through in the early stages of building bin century. It was sort of, uh, you know, a process of, finding a new technology that might be able to solve this problem, deploying it in a bin, only to find out that it wasn't actually, you know, adequate for, for um, you know, delivering the information that we would need from within that bin. And we must have iterated through literally hundreds of different variants of prototypes, uh, every single one of them, you know, showing some promise, but then ultimately failing for a different reason. Um, the inside of a feed bin is an incredibly difficult environment to be operating in. There's dust, it's pitch black. Um, you know, there's all kinds of other um, factors that come into play, humidity, feed flow issues, you name it. Um, and a lot of the sensors that are out there on the market today can sort of deliver you a small piece of the total snapshot of information that you would need in order to get accurate information about how much product is inside of that bin. Um, we ultimately sort of worked our way through each and every one of those, encountering all of the different challenges and um, you know, factors that ultimately led to those technologies failing, only to realize that if we were going to solve this, we were going to need to come at it from an approach that, you know, no one else had tried previously, we would have to literally build something new. Um, and so that's when we started to look at some other emerging technologies on the market um, that we knew were being used with success in other industries. Um, but, you know, in their current iterations were, were expensive because they were still fairly new um, they weren't as widely adopted or they were, you know, complex types of sensor technologies. Um, and then what we did is we said, could we use some of those new technologies and pare them down to sort of the bare minimum that we would need them to be to operate inside of a feed bin? And so one of the technologies that I'm talking about is LiDAR sensors. Um, LiDAR sensors sort of found their, their first and most major application on self-driving cars. Um, and in self-driving car, in that particular application, they're having to operate at hundreds of frames per second because they're, you know, determining the distance between cars in front of you at, you know, 100 to 120 kilometers an hour. So they need to be quick. They need to be taking lots and lots of images in order to automatically apply the brakes. But we're just looking at stationary feed inside of a feed bin. So a high frame rate and, you know, an extremely wide field of view. These are things that we could afford to sacrifice on to get access to a really, really good technology with a wide field of view but specifically tailored to the application that we were trying to solve. And so we began uh, the process of sort of developing our own custom LiDAR sensor. Um, there were other challenges as well, as I mentioned, which is dust inside of a bin. So we also had to keep this optical sensor with lenses on it free from dust, right? Otherwise the sensor becomes inoperable in a span of like two or three weeks. And so that was another challenge that we had to overcome. And I actually have a sensor sitting right here. This is the solution. <laughs> It's, it's, there's a reason why it's been on, you know, automobiles for the last hundred years. It's because Perfect. it works fairly well. Right. Yeah. Um, 
obviously there, there are things that we don't love about it. Anytime you can get away from a mechanical solution, mm -hmm. um, that's good. And so we continue to, to innovate and look at new and interesting options for, for eliminating the wiper. But mm -hmm. as I said, it works. Um, and so we, we sort of, you know, began this journey of figuring out what are all the possible things that could cause us to fail here and how do we overcome those things? Um, so the, the sensor that we've gone to market today uh, with is in fact that LiDAR sensor. Um, it is fully commercialized. We've got lots of customers using it um, with a high degree of satisfaction, but we also recognize that there's an opportunity to get even better here. Uh, and so we've got a version two sensor that's currently in development as well. Um, it is going to deliver us literally 9,000 times the accuracy. Um, and so, um, yeah, that's obviously very exciting as well. It's, it's a it's a project that I can't say a whole lot about. Um, probably if we would have done this interview, you know, one month from now, I could share a whole lot more information, but um, it's going to be released fairly soon. It's in the final stages of prototyping with a bunch of our customers, and it's definitely going to put Bin Sentry into a pretty elite tier, and it'll make it very difficult for anyone trying to follow in our footsteps uh, to be competitive unless they're doing something similar. Good for you. Good for you. So clients, Randall, yeah. um, farmers, feed mills, you know, and, and, you know, how do clients find you and source you? Yeah. Do they, they buy direct? Like what's your kind of your go-to-market strategy? Yeah. yeah, that's a great question. So this is kind of where we, we flip things upside down as well, as far as um, types of go-to-market strategies that I would say are, are typical in agriculture. Um, what we heard from our earliest customers again and again um, as we were sort of developing this this product and as we were in the early days of bin century is that ultimately what a feed mill was after if you boil it right down to the base was data data that they needed in order to be more efficient and one thing that they didn't want nor were they experts in is maintaining or installing hundreds or thousands of pieces of hardware, right? Essentially what our sensor is a miniature computer. And a lot of these companies may have an IT department, but the last thing they want to do is task that IT department with maintaining and managing and installing, you know, a thousand more computers in addition to the 10 that they're already struggling to manage in their offices. Uh, and so we, we needed to come up with a solution, a model that would enable them to get access to that data without having to then own the potential headaches that come along with owning hardware. Um, as I said, installing that hardware, maintaining that hardware, dealing with hardware obsolescence, which is a major um, thing that a lot of companies don't wanna have to deal with. And then of course, there's the fact that you're then owning a depreciating asset, which no one really wants to do. Um, and so the model that we ultimately came up with was an as a service model where we deliver the data to our customers, uh, who I should be very clear, are feed mills typically or vertically integrated companies. Um, in some cases, large producers also qualify as, as a large enough customer uh, that it makes sense for us to move forward. But um, yeah, we, we offer essentially bin, um, bin monitoring as a service, uh, similar to software as a service, hardware as a service. We offer that data as a monthly service as well as all of the software and, and the rest of the, the things that typically come along with Internet of Things solutions, that is all included in the monthly package. And then our customer obviously doesn't have to own the hardware, doesn't have to worry about installing the hardware, um, and essentially has a lifetime warranty. Um, so that, that has proven to be um, a fairly attractive model, if not a little bit um, unorthodox. 
So I would say the biggest challenge that we've faced as we've taken that model to the, the greater market is, is sort of helping them to understand that this is actually better for them um, in spite of the fact that it's not like how they're used to buying things. Um, so that, that probably has been the biggest challenge is sort of helping them to work out the total cost of ownership over a certain period of time and ultimately drawing the same conclusion that we, which is that this is better for them we're the experts in the sensor. Let us install and maintain the thing. And then not only that, if the sensor doesn't operate, you know, as, as promised, if it fails because of technology reasons, we're the ones who are ultimately accountable for that failure. And it's not a failure that's left on the shoulders of our customers. So uh, all in all, I think um, if you can get customers to the point that they recognize this is good, um, then yeah, you, you, you are likely to have a very satisfied customer moving forward. Yeah. Um, yeah, Randall, could you uh, take us through a bit of your fundraising journey uh, over the last uh, few years? I know you recently uh, raised about uh, $10 million and uh, yeah. just sort of that process and uh, I guess what, what happens after? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, we as many um, startups um, sort of did the whole uh, seed capital thing by going to, you know, family and friends and uh, we also raised some some capital from an incredible local company here in Kitchener-Waterloo called Garage Capital. Um, and we've also benefited from the mentorship of the guys running that company as well. Mike McCauley, Mike Litt, Devin Galloway. Um, two of those guys are founders of Vidyard, which is another highly respected company here in Kitchener-Waterloo. Um, and so, you know, in, in the early stages, we, we were able to um, demonstrate that there is truly a market here. There's a need for this type of technology. Uh, and because of that, um, we were able to elicit some buy-in from a number of, you know, people that, that had capital available. Uh, and one thing I would say, um, and I think this is, uh, probably, uh, a mantra by which a lot of startups could, could, could live by if they want to be successful. Uh, in fact, we talked about Y Combinator a little bit before we went on air here. And I think they also promote this. It's, it's this concept of being relentlessly resourceful. Um, that is potentially the most important quality that a startup can have is maximize how far you're able to take the limited funds that you raise in the early stages of your company. You're gonna minimize your dilution that way and you're going to maximize your returns that way. And I would say that if there's one thing that ultimately contributed to Bin Century's success, it was <laughs> that ability to be uh, extremely resourceful uh, with the funds that we did have available in the early stages, which then enabled us to not only you know, develop an MVP, but also, you know, build a pretty strong customer base by the time that we were then going to raise our Series A. Um, when we raised our Series A, you know, we sort of had the benefit then of having a lot of leverage in that discussion with investors because we could point to, you know, a really happy customer base, low churn uh, with regards to customers. In fact, to this point in time, we've had no churn. Um, and, and part of that is a function of you know, having fairly long contracts as well, but all of our customers also say that they're happy, which is a good sign. Um, but I, I would say that the sort of takeaway here is, is if you're in a good position after, you know, working your way through that seed series uh, capital that you've raised, you're going to be far better positioned for raising that series A. And we had the benefit of going into that um, series A raise 
with, with a really solid track record to point to. And for that reason, we were able to also secure some really strong investors in Lewis and Clark Capital, which is you know, primarily focused on ag tech um, based out of St. Louis. And then also the BDC Industrial Innovation Fund here in Canada, which also has a similar focus. Um, as we raised that Series A, we spent a huge amount of time uh, you know, qualifying investors and making sure that who we were talking to were companies that were going to actually be able to add value to the company and not just sort of, you know, tell us to pivot towards straight up SaaS models, um, not fully understanding, you know, how agriculture operates, for instance. We needed people that understood ag so that the advice that they ultimately, you know, would give us moving forward as we brought those investors onto our board uh, was advice that was in line with, um, you know, what the expectations of, of the greater industry would be of, of really a tech company that's been transplanted into ag. And that really is one of, one of the biggest challenges. I mean, you can have ag companies from within ag that start to build tech, or you can have tech companies that sort of move into ag. And I would say that we're probably more the latter than the former. Um, and so we've made a really high priority of listening, listening, listening to people in ag so that we can learn as much as we possibly can in as short a period of time. Uh, we never assume that you know, we know better than our customers do. Uh, and instead we just sort of take a listening and learning posture. Uh, and, and we kind of also looked for that same character uh, you know, quality in investors um, that we wanted to invest in the company. So uh, yeah, we, we ultimately raised, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Michael, a, a $10 million Canadian uh, Series A. Uh, we're putting that to good use now. So in the last five or six months, we've doubled the size of our company uh, in terms of employees. We're starting to look globally at sales. Uh, and obviously, we also announced a partnership, a commercial distribution agreement with Cargill, uh, which has been instrumental in helping us grow over the past little while as well. Well, congratulations. It's a tremendous progress and exciting to see, um, you know, companies and, and leaders like you uh, drive forward. Um, what, uh, you know, if people want to get involved and, uh, learn more about the company, um, you know, websites, uh, you know, how, how do they, how do they engage with you? Yeah. So, so do you mean customers or just like prospective employees? Anybody, you know, anybody, yeah. all the stakeholders. Yeah. So that's a great question. I mean, obviously podcasts like this are a great way for us to, you know, let people know what we're all about. Um, and um, so we've, we've tried to use those to our advantage to kind of get the message out there about what we're doing and what we're building. Um, our website is, is www.bincentry.com and we're getting quite amount, a fair amount of traffic on there as well, especially as I mentioned, you know, as news of a Cargill partnership is announced or news of our, our Series A financing got some really strong uh, traction as well. But I, I would say, to be honest, that the most effective um, sort of marketing um, benefit that we've had comes from word of mouth. Um, and I would say that that potentially more than anything else uh, is true. I, at least this has been my observation in agriculture. Uh, it's a close knit community and that's phenomenal. It's one of the reasons why as a tech transplant into agriculture, we have enjoyed this, you know, journey of building this company as much as we have is, is that, you know, once you're you're welcomed in and you demonstrate that you're not trying to, you know, uh, steer the ship yourselves without any knowledge of how ag works, but instead you're sort of deferring to the knowledge that you're gleaning from other people. Um, 
you'll find that um, you're, you're warmly welcomed uh, and people really want to collaborate and work together more so than in any other industry that I've ever seen, which I think is probably one of the best qualities of, of egg is that it's highly collaborative. Um, and we've no doubt benefited from that. So as we sort of, um, you know, invite other people to collaborate with us and, and work with us to, to build the best possible technology that we can build, um, that generates a lot of excitement and word of mouth really starts to travel that, hey, you know, if you haven't talked to Bin Sentry, you should talk to them because like they're super interested in, in solving whatever challenge you may have right now. They're focusing on being the best in the world at, at bin monitoring, but they're super interested in hearing about other things because, you know, they, they know lots of other companies and they can direct you to the right one or, you know, they, they might even like consider moving into that space in the future. And so there's an excitement around that type of innovation and that type of collaborative environment if you can create it. Uh, and as a result, uh, word of mouth has really been uh, one of the best ways that people have ultimately ended up uh, coming and finding us. You have a lot of uh, entrepreneurs and uh, I guess you know, young entrepreneurs and farmers uh, watching the podcast. Uh, do you have any advice for uh, people who are starting up uh, business in the agribusiness space? Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> where, where to start? So uh, we obviously are based here in Kitchener-Waterloo and that collaborative environment that I just talked about is super, super strong here. You can kind of you know, throw a stone and you'll, you'll, you'll hit a founder that's willing to sit down and talk with you about how to run a business. And so it's hard to distill like, you know, three years worth of wisdom that's been imparted into just a couple Lord sort of, uh, you know, nuggets of, of good, good advice. But I think if I had to do that, um, I sort of touched on one already. And I think it's that, that concept of relentless resourcefulness, figure out how to, maximize the capital that you have available. And I think that looks a little bit different for every company, but it's a recognition that your development should be product first. Um, and it's, it's an understanding that the customer is more important than anything else. Invite them into your development as early as you possibly can. Uh, again, this is sort of coming from Y Combinator and I think Paul Graham says it, but fail early and fail well. Um, and what I mean when I say that is, don't be afraid of a failure, embrace that failure, and then, you know, dissect it and figure out what can we learn from this and how can we get better? If you're willing to embrace failure and in fact, invite failure, failure in the early stages of your company's growth, you are going to be infinitely better positioned moving forward to mitigate against those potential failures when they're going to cost you a whole lot more money. Um, so uh, again, the, the relentless resourcefulness, the willingness to fail um, early and fail well. Um, and then I think the, the last thing that I would probably say is get a really strong sense of, of who your company is and what you represent and fiercely protect that culture. Um, the culture is ultimately what is going to preserve your identity and enable you to really push forward with a strong vision that attracts other people to your cause. So that's both investors. Um, and then also I would say people uh, that, you know, might want to come and work with you. Um, it also, I mean, to be honest, is something that, that carries a huge amount of cr uh, credibility and trust in your customers. Um, if they know what you stand for and they see that clearly reflected in who you are as a company, um, I think you build a whole lot more trust that you're going to be a company of longevity 
that's going to be around three years from now and not disappear one year from now. Because if you're going to survive, you need to attract the best talent. And the best way to do that is have a strong vision that resonates with people and that attracts other people to your cause. So yeah, um, I don't know. I, I hope that's that's a good job of like trying to kind of boil this down into a couple, you know, bite-sized chunks of, of good advice. Yeah, it's uh, really difficult to sort of boil it down into yeah, yeah like a 20, 30-minute chat because yeah. you know, a lot of these things you could just talk about for, uh, for a few hours and not even scratch yeah. the surface. Well, hey, the one thing I will say is like, I am so happy to connect with any young founder out there. Um, as I said, uh, we have benefited immensely from having proximity to other founders who have gone through these things in the past. Uh, it's super hard to, to, you know, live the life of a CEO because there's really no good way to learn how to do that uh, unless you actually are able to talk to other people who have gone through that journey in the past. Um, a CEO and a founder, right? Like they're both just roller coaster rides at times and understanding how to navigate uh, the, the successes and the challenges um, is something that I think you can, you can really do better when you have other people at your side who can act as mentors uh, and as just, you know, sounding boards for, for ideas. Um, so I, I, you know, have, I strongly believe in the concept of paying it forward and, and giving back. And so I try to make myself available to any founders if they ever want to chat about that kind of stuff. Uh, what would be the best way for uh, someone to reach out to you and connect? Oh, great question. Um, without broadcasting my email address to the entire world, I would probably say LinkedIn. Uh, shoot me a request on LinkedIn um, and give a little context in, in the blurb where you're saying why you want to connect. And yeah, I'd love to connect with people if that's uh, something they're interested in. Perfect. Um, before we head out, is there anything else you'd want to share with our listeners? Oh, man. I don't know. Uh, I guess if I had to say anything, I would just sort of say, I cannot overstate how important the culture piece is. Um, although I sort of said that last, I do strongly believe that companies need to stand for something. Um, in this world, which is growing increasingly politicized, um, people think that it's enough to just kind of, you know, I'm going to use this word, which is a little bit loaded, but virtue signal to the world about, you know, what it is you believe in. What I would say is, be what you believe in. Let your actions reflect what you believe in. Um, and don't just post these sort of trite things on social media to let the world know what it is you believe in. And that's going to be the best way for you to, to make this vision, which as a founder is, is your responsibility to really cast to the, to the rest of the team. The best way to make that a reality for the people that are joining you is to actually do that thing. And that's the most important thing. I think ultimately it comes down to what you what you would probably call integrity is is your actions aligning with your words. And if you can do that well, um, you are going to be a person of influence and and a person who someone you know is is happy to rally behind um, and who wants to unite in this cause. And as you're building a business, that's what you're doing is you're building something, um, and you want other people who are intelligent and capable to join that thing. Um, so again, it's culture, it's integrity, it's, it's being uh, the person that you're saying you're going to be. And, and that's more important than I think anything else uh, when it comes to entrepreneurship is that integrity. I just wanted to uh, thank you, Randall, for joining us today and yeah. telling us uh, some, I guess, great uh, tips in about Bin Century. And we look forward to uh, sort of watching it uh, in the near future with, the, uh, I guess, your new launch, you said, in, in a yeah. month. 
Yep. I appreciate it, guys. I genuinely uh, am grateful that you've uh, brought me onto the podcast today. Thank you. And I also wanted to say thank our listeners uh, for tuning in today. And uh, you can, as always, you can find uh, our podcast at the RH Accelerator website. Uh, it's also posted on YouTube and all the major podcasting apps.